0: of aging is that one's memory gets to be like swiss cheese and I've had an unseasonably fine memory until uh, January (laughs) and now I can't remember where my nose is or my car keys so I have to do things while I have them in front of me so um, there's some uh, sheets here Uh, about a four-week, four-class, four four Thursdays in a row in June that I'm going to be doing on impermanence. Everything changes. The cheery, everything changes, nothing remains the same. It is cheery in a lot of circumstances. (laughs) Um, What I want to talk about tonight uh, is um, carried um, throughout... uh, temples throughout the Himalayas. Just inside the entrance to uh, many of those temples, uh, on the left, as you go in the door, will be a painting of the Wheel of Existence. And there's this uh, painting that's actually for sale in the bookstore, which I snatched for purposes of uh, what I want to say. The Wheel of Existence in this uh, rendering uh, is held by the God of death, the god named uh, called Yama. And of course, this was a teaching for um, people who, by and large, did not know how to read. So it was a, a way of communicating uh, a Dharma teaching um, uh, pictorially. And um, the three of, uh, around the outer ring are the twelve, so-called twelve links. And the links I want to uh, have us consider together uh, are um, the link that has a man pulling an arrow out of his eye. That's called feeling. <laughs> so it suggests a certain intensity of feeling, not just any old feeling. And then um, the next link is craving, which uh, in this uh pictograph and and often is um, a man with some big uh, containers of beer and a mug that he's getting ready to fill up and grasping which is uh, typically depicted with a picture of a monkey in a fruit tree grabbing all the fruit so craving um, feeling craving grasping and I in particular want to talk about um, craving and grasping Uh, which is often what we don't realize we can do something about. So I'm going to leave this here. Uh, Let me, uh, I forgot to introduce myself. (laughs) You see what I mean. (laughs) Um, One of my names is Yvonne Rand. (laughs) And um, I... um, I first started uh, studying Buddhism as an undergraduate at Stanford in 1985. And um, in 1966, I met Suzuki Roshi, who is the Zen teacher around whom uh, the San Francisco Zen Center was formed. And um, the first time I met him, which was when I went to one of his Wednesday night talks, I realized oh, I've been looking for this teacher for a long time. And um, within a few months, I became his secretary, which meant driving him to Orange Land and Chinatown for uh, his weekly crate of oranges. And after um, Zen Center uh, bought Tassahara and started the uh, meditation center there, uh, driving him back and forth there, uh, spending a lot of time with him that was not just in the context of formal meditation practice, but uh, very much in the context of everyday lives. And I was fortunate um, that uh, his wife and I were the two people who took care of him uh, when he was um, dying of uh, metastasized gallbladder cancer. Um, His very young and and good-hearted doctor initially misdiagnosed him and thought he had hepatitis. And when he finally went in for some more tests and was um, uh, discovered that he had metastasized gallbladder cancer, when I went to visit him right after the results of the tests came in, he was sitting on the side of his bed in the hospital, uh, swinging his legs and grinning from ear to ear, ear and patting the bed for me to come and sit next to him, and took a forkful of his lunch and fed it to me, said, now we can eat together like we used to, because he was not any longer deemed contagious with hepatitis. And um, so I took care of him, especially at night. His wife and I would take turns, doing, usually doing uh, 10 or 12-hour shifts. She'd take a 10-hour shift, and I would usually do a somewhat longer shift and often uh, sit with him at night. So I got uh, an incredible training in sitting with him as he was dying about how it's possible to die and how it's possible to work with what uh, conventionally would be called a pain. Um, At one point, his doctor gave him some pain medication, and uh, after four hours had passed, he said, Yvonne, can you get rid of those pills, please? I said, well, I could flush them down the toilet. He said, excellent. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to ever take anything like that again. I don't like what it does to my mind. He had no problem with physical discomfort. He understood from long years of meditation practice how to work with, with physical pain and other kinds of pain. So as I sat with him in those last months of his life, I learned an enormous amount just watching him and being with him about how it's possible to, um, sit with what might be considered, um, unendurable pain and also how to sit with, uh, the clear indications of, uh, leaving the body. If we're born, we will die. So it was a very powerful and important teacher, teaching for me. Um when uh Jack asked me if I would um come and give a talk with you um I realized that what's i what I've been working with uh, recently are these uh these two links in particular and the twelve links um, of uh, dependent origination uh on craving and grasping and um i've actually been been bringing attention to the experience of craving, craving physically, uh, craving for something or craving for something not to happen. Um, and what I have uh, come to understand, um, I'm, I'm very interested in the sacred art tradition that comes uh, out of uh, Buddhist traditions. And in uh, some, occasionally, these paintings I've seen in in, uh, the Himalayas of uh, Yama holding the wheel of existence, there's sometimes a ladder off the wheel between craving and grasping. And uh, so I began to uh, just sit with, what's that about? What is the nature of craving that is no longer quite the nature of the next link, which is grasping. And um, what I began to uncover out of my own experience is that um, craving, especially craving that has a lot of energy invested in it, where the, the impulse for craving is very strong, if I don't feed the craving by grasping, the experience of craving begins to diminish energetically. So, um, and for many of us, I would imagine maybe all of us, if I get stuck in craving and then go on to grasping, uh, this is the territory of suffering. And what that ladder off between those two links suggests is one of the ways off the the ring of suffering is to not feed craving, to notice craving, allow craving to arise and disappear over against allowing it to arise and then feeding it, keeping it coming. So uh, part of what I'm talking about is what happens when I'm aware of craving, either for what I want or what I don't want, and that if I pay attention to the craving, and don't feed it with grasping, the energy in the craving begins to diminish. Um, after living in Marin County for thirty-three years, my husband and uh, and I moved a few years ago up to Mendocino County, and. Um, The next door neighbors, um, who are not there very often, they usually uh, their main home is in Oregon. But um, some years ago, the property that we now uh, live on and from an American point of view own, although I think that's not so useful. We we take care of the property where we live. Um, That property, the next property down Uh, was all part of a 160-acre parcel that was uh, owned by the next-door neighbor, the wife of the couple who lived next door, um, by her father, who was a a famous um, drunk. (laughs) He drank a lot. (laughs) So... um, what I realized is that uh, my next-door neighbor is very cranky with me and my husband and our dogs and what we've been doing with our property, etc. And it was really my husband who noticed she's not angry with us personally. she's angry with her father, and it's her displaced anger at her father for selling what she thought was her inheritance. So she's she's caught in the grasping part. (laughs) Um, So when I started uh, considering again these two links of craving and grasping, um, I thought uh, once again about her suffering, about um, things aren't the way she thought they should be, the way she wanted them to be, the way she expected them to be. And um, I don't know about any of you, but I certainly can... um, relate to uh, her unhappiness, (laughs) and I've begun to notice, well, what have I done to contribute, to add to the misery? Building the woodshed right on the property line (laughs) is probably number one, (laughs) but of course, I didn't quite know where the property line was because former owner built part of the addition to the house on the property line. So, you know, it's like how we keep track of these things takes a certain amount of diligence, et cetera. And I've I've taken presents of roses in my next door neighbor's mother's favorite color and tried to ply her with, you know, not sweets exactly, but roses. And uh, didn't put a dent in the chill factor from <laughs> next door. And what my husband noticed that this is not personal, this is historical, and it's not about you or me in particular, uh, was a very, uh, very useful intervention. Um, a teacher of mine, uh, a part Native American man, who I studied with for a number of years and who lived with us for some years, his name is Harry Roberts, um, used to say, ask three questions. What do I want? What does it cost? Am I willing to pay the price? And um, I've thought about um, those three questions in terms of the relationship with the next-door neighbor. And I've actually been thinking about How could we move the woodshed so that I can't do anything about the fact that the master bedroom is built on the property line? But there are things that I can do about what we've done that contributes to the unhappiness next door. Um, As long as I don't have any expectation that my neighbor is going to take what I do the way I'd like her to take it that's the grasping part i get stuck with the craving uh, the craving but i i don't need to take it beyond that i would like to have somewhat more harmonious relationship uh with the next door neighbor but uh all i can do is study and train my own mind i can't do anything about her mind stream so i um uh, i recommend that uh <laughs> You can go online, and uh, if you go to, um, what must it be, maybe Google? Uh, One of the search engines, anyway, uh, up on the top of the computer screen will be uh, a category called images. And you can download quite well-rendered Buddhist images uh, from that, uh, that site. And I recommend that you, you know, root around and see if you can find the, the wheel of existence held by the god of Yama. It's quite useful. In the middle, um, what keeps the wheel turning, there's a pig, a snake, and a rooster. And they represent greed, hate, and ignorance. Or as Bob Thurman uh, translates, ignorance unconscious misknowing that's what keeps the whole thing turning well you can't change what you don't see you can't change what you don't recognize is operating in the way you do things so I I actually find that translation of his quite useful and in um, in this pictograph if you will in each of the, there are six realms inside the circle of the 12 links. And they represent the uh, three lower realms, which are the hungry ghosts, the animal realm, and the hot and cold hell realms. And then the, above uh, the cross-section, there's the human realm, there's the uh, titans, who have a fruit tree, that hangs over the wall into the realm of the long life gods where all the fruit is. And so there they are sawing down the tree. Often they're depicted as sawing down the tree so that the long life gods won't get the fruit because it's, their tr- it's the titan's tree and they don't want anybody else to have it. And in each of these realms is a bodhisattva uh, with a different instrument. So in the human realm, the Bodhisattva is uh, is holding um, the teachings, the, the Dharma, as the uh, the uh, way to relieve suffering in the in the human realm. In the long life realm, uh, in the realm of the long life gods, which I think is quite wonderful, the Bodhisattva is holding a lute and strums one string, which rises and falls. So, that even the long life gods have to be reminded about impermanence, about coming and going. And uh, I find remembering coming and going very, very useful. So, um, what I want to suggest, and going back to the 12 links, uh, beginning with feeling, whether it's feeling physically or mentally or psychologically or energetically, feeling of certain sorts will lead to craving. Craving, for example, if, if one has some pain, you want it to go away. Or I have the pain of my next-door neighbor being very unhappy with me and I want her to think I'm terrific, etc. And then... There's grasping, and what I have observed in my own practice is that if I don't go to grasping, if I stay with craving, and I don't feed the craving, I I have increased capacity to notice that it rises and disappears, that even craving has a mark of change, of impermanence. And when that happens, when I have the direct experience of craving comes and goes, I'm not going to get caught in a kind of um, trap once I go to grasping, where I'm likely to get very stuck. An old friend of mine um, some years ago got quite taken with somebody he was dating, and all he could think about for six months was sex. That was it. His life fell apart. He suffered hugely because he wasn't getting what he wanted, and all he could think about was what he wasn't getting but that he wanted. And it was really witnessing his suffering that brought my attention to, oh craving if i don't feed it will begin to lose energy so i want to invite you all to consider um, when you're aware of craving Um, i remember when i was in college there was an extremely uh, tasty um, homemade ice cream store near the campus and i developed a quite intense craving for ice cream And um, what's been interesting to me is that for 30 years, I have not thought of ice cream at all. And even if my husband brings home ice cream, it's in the refrigerator, but I'm not, the craving is gone. So it is possible to have craving with a lot of energy in it and if you don't feed the craving, the craving begins to subside, and and uh, change. So I want to uh, invite you all to consider that. Um, the I spend a fair bit of time. My husband spends even more studying the sutras in, in the polytext texts, and. Um, in Sanskrit and Pali, the word that denotes thirst is is, is the same. And I think that um, thinking of craving as a kind of thirst and depending on what it is you're thirsting for will determine the intensity or the, or the want of it. So I, I want to suggest that uh, denotation to you. Um, and notice... How often thirst arises in the face of um, what I consider pleasurable. Um, lust certainly is in that category, but m- maybe something somewhat less troublesome like ice cream. Um, and there's, of course, ultimately the most significant thirst that we have that gets talked about a lot in the B- Buddhist teachings and in the, the uh, various uh, collections recording the Buddhist teachings is that um, thirst for existence, for self-existence, for solid, permanent, separate, independent self. Not the same picture at all as the self that exists Codependently, interdependently. I remember some years ago when um, a group of us, uh, Western Buddhist teachings, would meet periodically. And uh, at one of our meetings, uh, there was a, uh, a teacher from the Theravadin tradition who uh, gave one of the teachings before the main teachings with His Holiness the Dalai Lama uh, began. And he started his teaching by saying, "Um, what I'd like to talk to you about today is how I'm here because of a camellia bush in South Africa. (laughs) Of course, what he then went on to tell us was that his mother and father met in a botanical garden in South Africa admiring, at the same time admiring a camellia bush in bloom that's how they met and he said you know one thing leads to another and here I am (laughs) so um, one of the practices that I have found quite uh, useful is at least one meal a day I take one item of food and before I turn to eating whatever that item of food is I contemplate what are the causes and conditions that have led this piece of fruit, this apple, to be on my plate at lunch today? So I not only get to go back to the the uh, store where I bought it, but I also get to go back to the apple orchard where the apple came forth as an apple on a fruit tree, and the farmer who planted the apple trees and harvested. And then there's the getting the apple to market, which involves trucks and drivers and gasoline and machine parts. And pretty soon you, you get the picture that you've got the whole world knitted together um, as evidenced with this inquiry in, how did this, how did this apple get to be here? And I find um, there's a kind of flip side between what is and what isn't. So the teachings on emptiness, of uh, we often talk of emptiness as though emptiness is a thing. I think those of you in the Theravadan tradition don't get caught with that so much because the Heart Sutra is not usually so central in the Theravadan tradition. But in, in the Zen schools, and in particular the school that I trained in, The Heart Sutra is a sutra that you recite at least once a day, maybe more often. And so often the translation will talk about emptiness as though emptiness was a noun. And actually what's more accurate is emptiness of the sense of self that's permanent, solid, separate, independent. So... It's the what is not, and the what is, is the teaching on on dependent origination. That nothing arises without causes and conditions. And my own experience, uh, especially in this territory of craving and grasping, is that if I can allow myself to bring attention to the experience of craving, and can also then begin to notice what feeds the craving. And am I willing to notice that even craving has a mark of change? It comes and goes, unless I'm feeding it. If I'm feeding it, am I willing to notice how I'm feeding that craving for whatever the craving is directed towards? In other words, I come back into awareness what can I do something about and what can I not do something about? What's the suffering I can do something about and what's the suffering I can't do anything about? Um, I was, what day of the week is this? This is Monday. A week ago last Friday, I was in the emergency room in... (laughs) Juno. <laughs> and I went to the, I was taken by, I was leading a retreat and uh, two of the students in the retreat took me to the hospital because I was having a cup of coffee during a break after breakfast and I couldn't swallow, I couldn't get it down or out. It was stuck here. Maybe 15 seconds, but when you can't swallow or spit it out, it's felt like more than 15 seconds seconds and they raced me to the emergency room the doctor who was in attendance is the brother of the husband of the couple that owns the plant nursery in our valley where I buy plants (laughs) so you know 300 people, and the rest is done with mirrors, and I'm completely (laughs) convinced that's an accurate (laughs) statement. So I recognized the doctor's face and voice, and then I looked at his name and it said uh, Ludwig. I said, Oh. He looked at me and he said, "Um, Are you from Juneau? I said, No, I'm from the Anderson Valley. And he went, Oh. You must know my younger brother. (laughs) Anyway, um, he ran me through uh, every test they do. I guess this is what happens in emergency rooms. They just run you through everything. And they couldn't find anything. So he was getting ready to send me home. He came in. I'm lying down there in the bed. He peers over me and he said, what are you doing? I said, what do you mean, what am I doing? I'm lying here. He said... All your tests have you at the low end of normal. You've got the constitution of a twelve-year-old, and he, you know, the first thing they ask you is your birth date. So he knew I'm about to be seventy-five. I'm not a twelve-year-old. <laughs> Nothing like it. <laughs> but um, I, it was such an it was, it was such an interesting experience because. What I described to him that I was doing was long inhalation and long exhalation, which, of course, I know um, as a meditator. And it's something I've been doing for a number of years. Um, I've done it through various and sundry surgeries. And the result is always the same. All the vital signs are at the low end of normal. I recommend it. (laughs) It will save you all kinds of money and suffering. In traffic jams, in a situation where you want to hit somebody, when anger arises, just slow. And particularly if you do it with walking. Walking and breathing, inhalation slow and exhalation slow. We'll take care of panic. We'll take care of anxiety. We'll take care of anger. We'll take care of all kinds of suffering. It's an amazing and effective practice. And the text that I recommend that you look into, if you're at all interested, is Larry Rosenberg's translation of the Sutra on Mindfulness with Breathing In and Mindfulness with Breathing Out, the Anapanasati Sutra. It's a it's it's an invaluable meditation tool for all kinds of situations, and in my experience, um, is a very quick introduction to the possibility of having a vote about what your state of mind is, even under circumstances where you think I just want to get out of here, because there are going to be times when you aren't going to be, be able to, quote, get out of here. And it is in those situations where you know, I keep thinking of the butterfly in the bell jar Have any of you read that book, about the guy who was locked in it's, it's, doctor friends of mine say it's the one thing that they don't want to think about because they can't imagine how they would, would do it. But, you know, what the man who was locked in and, and tells that story did it by blinking the text of the book with one eyelid. That was all he could move. And he figured out a certain system for communicating the letters of the alphabet and dictated the book to somebody who was in the, on the nursing staff. Isn't that just amazing? It's a film like that. Yeah, yeah, there is. But the, the book is, then you get to come up with your own pictures. So what I want to invite you to do is to consider cultivating your willingness to um, notice craving. And if you go to grasping, notice the consequences of the grasping and consider the possibility of just resting with awareness of, in this moment, craving rising and disappearing. And that you actually have a choice about whether you're going to feed it or not. That's it. My words of wisdom for tonight. Let's see. Yeah, where does the craving arise? How does it establish itself? Wherever there is anything agreeable and pleasurable, greed arises. on an attractive object, and hate arises on a repulsive object. Does that sound familiar? Maybe none of you ever thinks of, finds anything repulsive or attractive. I happen to love, uh, no, that's not the right word. I am quite interested in dead Things. (laughs) Skunks, um, snakes, bats, frogs, dogs, and cats. Um, I have a bobcat in the freezer, which my husband says I have to take out of the freezer because our electric bill is too high with that refrigerator, Um, which is fine. Then the decomposition process will quicken once I take the bobcat out of the freezer. And now people have started bringing me dead animals, like somebody who's built stone walls for us on our property brought me a baby mountain lion. Well, actually, he told me about it. I said, Bill, you didn't bring it to me? He was gone. And about two hours later, there it was in a plastic sack on the steps. He said, I just wasn't thinking. I forgot about you. I threw it over the edge, and then I had to go back and climb down the side of the slope and get it back, and it's a stinking mess here. (laughs) But, you know, decomposition is going on all the time, and it's absolutely fascinating. I actually have a flicker carcass, that we picked up, waiting for the airporter in Flagstaff, Arizona, about 20 years ago, and all that's left is the skeleton. And what I didn't know, because you know, flickers, uh, you might see them here. You certainly see them on Mount Tam. They like high, mountainous, wooded areas. And the underside, if you see them above you. The underside of the wings are this beautiful red. What I didn't realize is that the color's almost entirely from the spine of the feathers. And the uh, Yurok tribe on the Klamath River used to use those feathers for a headdress when they would do a, a healing dance when somebody in the tribe was, was sick. So the feathers were, were considered uh, very, uh, very important in terms of this uh, healing practice that they did. No, it's not a hawk. The flicker is about, I don't know what family it's in, but it's about the whole from stem to stern. It's about that long. I'll tell you how long it is. It's about the size of my side view mirror which I know because I sheared off my side view mirror, not paying attention to when I was parking. So there I have, have an extra side view mirror that I put the flicker skeleton on because that way I can see all sides of it because I don't want to miss anything. Maggots, not for everybody. I know it's not for everybody, but... I'm telling you, it's what's going to happen um, unless you get, um, what, formaldehyde and embalmed and no fun. And particularly because, you know, I've got a titanium hip. I'm about to have my knee, right, right knee replaced. So far, my ankles are fine. I'm doing very fine on one kidney. But this is what happens as we age. We start getting plastic and metal and other kinds of parts. Or we learn to live without all those parts. And an enormous amount of suffering comes up in the face of the fact, the irrevocable fact of change. I don't look in the mirror very often, um, mostly because I don't have very many mirrors to look into, except the ones I've got, you know, dead critters on. (laughs) So uh, when I was at somebody's house the other day, I looked in the mirror and I thought, my goodness, look at all those wrinkles. I hadn't noticed all those wrinkles. Well, it's because I hadn't looked. but I think I'm probably happier because I'm not looking in the mirror you know, four times a day. So uh, what I'm really talking about is I'm inviting you to bring your attention to what you can do something about and learn how to have some degree of ease with what you can't do something about. If you have a body, you will die, one way or another. And the more you include awareness that that's just the way it is the more ease you will have when it comes time for dying and um you know there are a, a number of of different people in the in the buddhist world who've talked about meditations on dying and death um I think we need more um, exploration and description in English that is spare and descriptive but isn't going to scare us half to death. So pay attention to roadkill. It's not a bad place to start. You know, I pull over and I take the roadkill out of the middle of the road and put it on the side of the road or if I've really got my kit with me which includes a cardboard box and some rubber gloves and maybe two cardboard boxes if it's going to be a big critter but sometimes there's somebody tailgating me and it's not safe to pull over so you know but at least I'm not going to keep running over the same miserable skunk skunks poor skunks on where we live I we have a 45-mile drive from 101 to where we live. And I see more skunks in the middle of the road, and I'm sure it's because skunks in the animal world, everybody leaves them alone because they, they go. Psss. So they, they think they can do that with cars, and it doesn't work. I think there's a teaching there. What can I do something about and what can I not do something about? <laughs> okay, that's enough for me. Okay, so um, we have a little bit of time, 15 or 20 minutes. If there, We don't have to talk about what I'm bringing up if you don't want to. <laughs> um, I'm happy to talk to you about anything you want. I did notice a number of you back there uh, lying down, and I wonder if you have received instruction in how to meditate lying down. Have you? Is that part of your repertoire? There are four noble postures. Sitting, you know about sitting and walking. You know about standing? You always put one foot slightly in front of the other and keep the knees soft. That way you can stay balanced. Now, I'm afraid I'll lose my tether if I lie down, but I I can describe it to you. If you do lying down meditation, put your feet flat on the floor so your knees are sticking up in the air. That way your spine will be completely flat and supported by the the carpet and the floor. And have your hands at about a 45-degree angle with the palms up. If the palms are down the spine will be a little lifted. If the palms are up, the spine will be completely flat on the floor at about a 45-degree angle. And then just follow your breathing, uh, preferably in your belly, um, but allowing the breath to rise and fall. Um, What did you say about the feet? About what? What about the feet? The feet are flat on the floor with your knees up in the air. Yeah. And no, not that far, a 45 degree yeah. angle, about like that. Yeah. And the great thing about uh, lying down meditation, you don't want to do it underneath these bright lights. You don't want to be looking up into a bright light. Um, and you want your eyes to be at about a 45 degree angle. Now, I know in your tradition, many of you, um, I've learned over the years, meditate with your eyes closed. I think at this time of night, especially when the room was as warm as it was when we were sitting, it's a setup for going to sleep. And I'm not a big advocate of associating sleep with meditation. It's, it's a real trap. Having the eyes slightly open at about a 45 degree angle, um, you won't have mind movies and you won't go to sleep. That's the main advantage to having. Now, the exception is if you're doing a body scan or if you are, as you would be doing in the in, the, in the Tibetan Buddhism, in Vajrayana practice, you might be doing a visualization. So if, for example, you were doing a, a visualization on this form, you'd use that painting or uh, there's a tanka over there and um, you could do a, a, a visualization of a Milarepa, which is the tanka that's back there. This is the equipment for learning a visualization. So you look, for example, uh, I think that's a Buddha tanka over there. You look at the the central deity, if it's the the historic Buddha, you look and then you close your eyes. And you look and you close your eyes. And you start by focusing on the face or if there's a particular stance or a particular implement. and you build your capacity to visualize, and you use the painting as the vehicle for teaching you the visualization. So visualization practices certainly require having eyes closed. Um, Mindfulness practices do not, unless, unless, as I said, you're doing a body scan. Um, If you're doing a breath-following practice, you're less likely to fall asleep. You're less likely to have your head tip like this or go like this or go to sleep if your eyes are partially open. Okay? Now, uh, the particular uh, school of Zen that is my home path um, has embedded in it teachings from the Theravadin tradition. So I really have learned more about my home path from having it's also got some, Therav- uh, some Vajrayana practices embedded. So I've learned an enormous amount studying with teachers in the Theravadan tradition and in Vajrayana. I've learned in both cases more fully the, the what's embedded in the particular school of Soto Zen that's the home path for me. And I think that in this country, what's happening is um, more and more. Uh, People who are taking the teaching seat in one or another tradition have started then going and taking teachings in other traditions to kind of widen their own understanding. And that seems to be part of what's happening as Buddhism is coming west. And um, I I do think we need teachers for those traditions outside our home. I think we need teachers to learn practices uh, initially Um, and I think periodically sitting in the in the student seat is is extremely valuable the teachers who get into trouble are the teachers who don't regularly periodically sit in the student seat in my experience okay questions yes please if you could stand up I'm I don't know if it'll make a difference in my hearing you but Yeah, yeah. How oh, you don't get distracted yeah. by that from what you're supposed to be doing in the, in the world at that you know. Um What do you think? He's asking if I would say more about the practice of deep breath, deep inhalation and deep exhalation. Um, I've mostly established the practice when I'm sitting and or when I'm walking and I count the inhalation using the uh, the rhythm of a second hand. So I've started by using a, a clock with a big second hand so that each breath at the count of five seconds or longer in length and the exhalation five seconds or longer in length. And then often there'll be a little space at the end of the exhalation. So I'll just let that pause be there until the next inhalation starts. And... um, Can you just count you just say to yourself... That's what I do. But I establish the pace of the counting at the rhythm of a second hand going from one second to another. So that, in other words, I'm suggesting having each inhalation be at least five seconds in length or longer, and the same with an exhalation or longer. And uh, what I find is sometimes, uh, it, it, it's connected to a practice I do when I'm sitting with somebody as they're dying. It's a, uh, it, it contributes to my being able to follow the dying person's breathing. But uh, especially if the dying person is breathing more rapidly than that, I might do one of those my breaths to two one inhalation to two of theirs, and the same with the exhalation. But I've established my ability for that long inhalation and long exhalation um, in the context of meditation. and I think you would find Larry Rosenberg's book he he's done a commentary a translation and a commentary on the mindfulness sutra of breathing in and mindfulness with breathing out called the Anapanasati Sutra. And it's been out for quite a long time, but it's very accessible and clear. And um, it's great for when you're in a traffic jam. It's great for when you're in the dentist's chair. It's great when you're um, in a situation where you can't move or do something because there's a line in front of you or you know various circumstances is that um, oh, uh, yeah so, so how do you how do you do that uh, so h- how do you do that and not get distracted from you know like let's say you're typing or or you're driving I, you're I, dri- driving or something like I'm that. place I I'm intentionally placing attention on the breath and counting the length of the inhalation and counting the breath of the, the length of the exhalation. I'm I'm that's where I've placed attention. And you know that's what basic mindfulness practice is about is placing one's attention, for example, if you do the mindfulness practice where you step over the threshold of the door with the leg closest to the hinge side of the door. Well, that's a mindfulness practice, and what I'm doing is placing attention on where the hinge is and where the threshold is, and then figuring out, oh, when I go from the kitchen to the deck, I go going out, I step over with the right leg, and coming back into the kitchen, I step over the threshold with the left leg. So I have to think about that initially, um, in setting my intention for doing that practice. Um, but this is everything about an alternative to distraction. And, you know, we live in a culture that sponsors distraction, I'm afraid. <laughs> doing, We have this idea that we can do three things at once. And I, I think it's um, the path to suffering. I think it's really delusion. Yes, please. About, am I not talking loudly enough? <laughs> You're, you are saying it loud enough, but I'll repeat the question. So, yeah. This, You're seg- on tape. this segues well into what you were saying, which is a question I'd love for you to speak more about: um, listening to and studying with, and sitting with different teachers from different t- traditions, and how to. Well, I, I guess I have a fear of muddling up mm-hmm. or not mm-hmm. uh, going feeling like I'm just digging a shallow hole there yeah. and a shallow hole there instead of digging deeply yeah. into one place? I, th- I, I, I appreciate that. I think that's a very important um, concern. Um, I studied Buddhism as an undergraduate in college, uh, primarily studying uh, Buddhism in contemporary China. Uh, in the history department and it was intellectual history in China Um, and then you know I graduated and I got married and I had children and I became a potter and blah 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 and then so I graduated from university in 1957 and I was uh, taking a weaving class with one of Suzuki Roshi's student's wife and um, the husband suggested that I might be interested when he found out that I'd studied Buddhism before in college I might want to go hear Suzuki Roshi so I went to a Wednesday night talk and I immediately knew here's my teacher I didn't know this is who I was looking for But that first night, it was very clear to me, this is who I want to study with. I then spied on him. And I told him I was spying on him. And he said, fine, I'm spying on you too. Uh And uh, he said, uh, after a couple of months, uh, the flat next door to where the Zen Center was located at the time, became empty, and he said, I I want you and the kids to move into that flat. I want you to be closer, because then I can wave to you. If you're in the bathroom washing, bathing the kids, I can wave to you from the kitchen. I I did learn to pull the blinds when it wasn't the children, but anyway. Um, But I was ripe, but I had done a lot of spiritual practice in the Christian context, earlier, and it was clear to me from a very early age that um, that an inner life was central to me. And my early teachers were animals, horses, cows, pigs, chickens, dogs, cats. Um, I learned some of the less favorable things from the human beings in my early childhood, with a couple of exceptions but the animal world I learned an enormous amount that uh, I think helped me be ripe for what meditation practice is about but I studied with Suzuki Roshi for until he died and then I studied with uh, Katagiri Roshi who had been at the Zen Center and then went to Minnesota and I went to Minnesota a lot um, after Suzuki Roshi died and and, and took care of Katagiri Roshi while, while he was dying the last year of his life. And um, then, it's a complicated story I don't need to go into, but I ended up studying, I w- went to a retreat in the Hawaiian Islands and met a, 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 a Vajrayana teacher And he was very clear. I want you to stay on your home path. And if there's anything I can teach you that supports you as a Zen practitioner, great. I don't want you to become a tantrika. And it was through studying with him that I uncovered a huge amount of, of Vajrayana influence, especially in ritual and ceremony in Soto Zen, in the particular school of Zen that is my home path. And I then began, as I studied more polytext, I realized there's a lot in the Theravadan tradition that's foundational in in Soto Zen. So then I started studying with various um, uh, Theravadan teachers. Um, And it may be particular to the Soto Zen school that I was training in, that there are these influences from other traditions, but I've benefited enormously um, from studying with t- teachers in those two traditions. And um, that's where I've been able to sit in the, in the student seat most fully. Um, and uh, I also find having colleagues, that is other teachers in the same school of Zen that I'm in, uh, we meet together, we talk about our, what comes up for us as teachers, that is, we don't quite know how to work with or we have trouble in a relationship with a student or whatever. So there's always some feedback system. And I think getting out of a feedback system is, is, is risky. I think it's very I think risky. Dangerous. I think it's very dangerous for both teacher and student. So. Wait, what do you mean by getting out of a feedback system? <laughs> if I'm not... Presenting myself as a student so a teacher can give me some feedback about what they observe in the way I'm practicing, what I'm missing, what I might want to bring some attention to, uh, maybe suggest a practice that I didn't know about or hadn't thought of or whatever. I mean, I know a tremendous amount um, from, because I can read people's bodies. I pay a lot of attention to what I know from the way somebody sits. I I know a lot about what's going on. I mean, for example, a number of you spend your meditation thinking. How do I know that? Because your chin is out like this, and the chin leans into the thoughts. If the head is like this, you're much more likely to be Dithering around mentally, or like this, 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 this. Uh. Uh-uh. Um. If if you're slouched, that affects your breathing. You want this lift, and then the shoulders dropped. This is where the 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 focus in Zen on physical body stuff. I think, really echoes the same area of emphasis in the Theravadan traditions, And I've benefited hugely from practicing with several uh, Theravadan teachers. Yeah? Can you talk about some techniques on how to deal with the grasping? Uh, I, I understand the, the craving, but can you talk about... Uh, inter- the way to dismantle cra- grasping is by bringing more attention to craving and letting the craving arise and fall. If you put your primary focused, placed attention on craving, uh, you, you dismantle that particular pattern before it goes to grasping. Once you go to grasping, you're in the soup. But it's do not say too late. You, can, you may notice later, oh, I got caught by, I wasn't paying attention to the arising of craving, and then I went to grasping, and I'm only now noticing it. As long, If you're willing to notice what you can notice, when you can notice it, you will begin gradually to close that gap between the arising of craving and grasping and noticing. There's a kind of lag time. And unfortunately, what happens for many of us is we beat ourselves up because we didn't notice the grasping or the craving in the moment when either was arising. And I'm not gonna notice if I beat myself up. No, Respect the noticing when you're able to notice. Does that help? Yeah, okay. Yeah. I notice in uh, the teachings of a person, like Jack, for example, when he says thoughts arrive, it's okay. Here, oh, take you it. know, allow the thoughts to be there and allow them to disappear. But that's that's very different from feeding them. Yeah. It, that's true. That's very different from feeding but it's them. It's allowable. It's not, it's, but the, it, it's more flexible, it seems to me, than what you're saying. Well, it's not what I mean to. Be, it's yeah. not. No, it's it's not what I'm okay. suggesting. Okay. Um, thoughts come and go if we're not feeding them. If we're not. If they if there aren't some hooks and snags and Velcro on a thought, um, unless I'm interested in studying the mental patterns that, are, that come up for me often. So, for example, to note the category of a thinking, not the content, but the, oh, judgment. And then, go quick, the antidote practice, t- quick, 10 things I'm grateful for. So, the difference between noting um, uh, judgment and the content, um, noting storytelling or getting caught in the story, is really significant. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, okay. There's somebody way back there. You get, you're getting a workout. <laughs> Thank you. What is the antidote practice for craving? For craving? Yeah. You said there was an antidote practice for judgment, which I didn't know. There's an antidote for judgment, which is... Ten things you're grateful appreciation. for. Appreciation. So no, what, what ten is things you're grateful for. And the gratitude list doesn't have to have anything to do with what the judgment is about. Is craving... That, uh, um, my experience is... If I note craving and I don't feed it with grasping, the craving rises and disappears. And um, pretty soon I get onto a category of craving, and then I can figure out or look in a text for uh, a, a more specific practice. But a bare, bare noting—you could call it spare noting. Uh, oh, thinking. Come back to. Alignment or a neutral body sensation and breath in, breath out. That interrupts those the uh, uh, a pattern like uh, like uh, craving um, quite quite effectively. If I note oh craving and then I shift to a neutral body sensation, breath in, breath out. I've picked my attention up and placed it back on home base, which is a neutral body sensation or alignment of head, heart, hara. I, I like to use both those focuses. Um, finding, for some of us, figuring out what a, what's, a, what's a body sensation that's neutral takes a little checking in. For example, right now, the sensation, the pressure just in front of the heel of my right foot as my foot is resting on the metal bar of the chair. That's noting. An area of sensation that has to do with contact between a particular part of the bottom of the foot and the the metal piece of the chair I'm sitting on. So uh, Picky, picky details, specific details, really helpful. Okay, yes, please. I just wanted to clarify the point where the lady asked if about the dabbling versus getting deeper, and you gave us your personal home path about the different influences, different schools into your home path. But so I, but would I you suggest for all of us. Is it okay to just shop around and get different influences? Or is I, think it's u- I think it's useful in the beginning so that you get some idea of who's out there and who's teaching and there'll be somebody you'll resonate with. And if there is somebody that you resonate with, then sit with them. Uh, my suggestion is you sit with the person you're drawn to for three years and spy on them. The entire time. Because we fall in love and we get um, fooled with somebody who presents a very dazzling picture. But are they really lined up with what they're teaching? Three years is a long probation. Well, Uh um, I've worked with people who've suffered longer than that because they didn't spend three years spying on the teacher they were drawn to. I mean, you know, this reminds me of a pig, I mean, a a joke with which I will end. There was a man out driving through apple orchard country, and he came uh, alongside the fence of an orchard, and there was the farmer holding a pig up to eat the apples off the trees and the guy got out of the car and said to the farmer what are you doing doesn't that take a lot of time and the farmer said what's time to a pig (laughs) well you know otherwise it's just too serious (laughs) I mean it is serious it's deadly serious but Use the sniff and stomach test. And, um, and, you know, look around, see who's out there. And don't sign up as a permanent resident too quickly. I mean, I think one of the things that is a great advantage for those of you practicing here is that the teachers team teach, which is, I think, really healthy. I, I admire that about the way the teachers work together here. Um, in the Zen tradition, teachers tend to teach alone. And um, I, it's risky, quite risky. So thank you very much. It's nice to see you all. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. I'm sitting close enough so I can get a question before you leave. Of a Buddhist atheist. Oh, uh, excuse me. I, oh, I do want to say, you should all read "Confessions of a Buddhist Atheist." It's terrific. It's. Uh, I think Stephen is a remark. He and Martine, I think, are great teachers. No, no, no. Anyway, read it. Thank you for listening.